I look forward to these opportunities uh, to not only fellowship with like-minded believers, but also pour over the Word of God and seek a blessing. And I believe that as, as we have come tonight looking for a blessing from God's Word, He will answer that. You can be assured of it. As we were coming from Brian's place, had a wonderful time of fellowship and a wonderful supper there at their place this evening, and we were coming over this way to church, and, and I happened just to notice the beautiful sky. And as the sun was setting, uh, it's like the bottom parts of the clouds were just this, this rich pink. They were just on fire. And it was just so beautiful. And it made me think about our great Creator God. The God who, who has designed these things in such an amazing way. He's such a creative God. And I thought of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth, who has set Thy glory above the heavens. And then verse 3, When I consider Thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? And then he ends the psalm again by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Praise God. You know, that has a way of, of putting things in their proper place. It has a way of putting us in our proper place and helping us to see things from a better perspective, from a higher perspective. We see God as He truly is. The great Creator, the sustainer of life, the One who, is, who has made all these marvelous things with His fingers. And then, what is man? In comparison to that, not even a drop in the bucket. And yet, and yet it is man that God truly cares about above all of his creation. And God longs to have a vibrant relationship with that man. It just blows our minds. And so he's calling for each of us tonight. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the call again tonight. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for a text. Hebrews is really one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is a beautiful book. A book with such wonderful word pictures. It's a book of better things. And tonight I would like to draw our attention to Hebrews chapter 2 and specifically drawing from the first four verses. But the book of Hebrews was written at a very strategic time in history. The temple was still standing, and the sacrifices were still being offered. But in just a few years, both the temple and the city of Jerusalem would be completely destroyed. And the Jewish nation would be scattered, including Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And so these were very politically unstable times. These were changing times for the people back then. And in the midst of this, many of those believers were, uh, they were tempted to abandon their new faith and to slip back into the old rules, the old familiarity of religion. The book of Hebrews really targets those believers. You know, think about that for a moment. I mean, at this point in history, it was like upset the fruit basket, at least the church scene. Think about, think about the church scene, as it were, <laughs> prior to Christ. Think about all the doing that was required, all the rituals, the temple worship, coming to the temple, the sacrifices, the blood, the mess, the, all of that. It was a lot of doing. Now we come into this era. Jesus Christ had come, ministered among the people. 
gave his life on the cross. He now rose from the grave. He ascended back to the Father. And here we have this, this new church scene. <laughs> okay? And it's not, it's not majoring anymore on the doing so much. But it's this relationship with God the Father through His Son Jesus Christ. It is a relationship that is by faith. And so I think it would do us well to extend some grace. Sometimes maybe we're a little hard on the believers in this era and we kind of snap out of it. And yet I think it's good for us to extend some grace. This was somewhat of an upset the fruit basket time church-wise. But, you know, think of how it can be for us to sort of slip back into our old ways. Think about a little child. Maybe they have recently been uh, weaned of their blankie, finally got them over sucking their thumb. But then maybe dad and mom make a move. Or maybe something uh, big happens. Something unsettling happens in the family's life. And one day they're looking around the house. Where's Johnny? Where's Johnny? And they find Johnny on the couch with his blankie sucking his thumb again. <laughs> you know, children tend to do that. They tend to slip back into what was familiar, what was comfortable, where they found safety. It's in those unsettling times. You understand what I'm saying, I believe. And in a sense, this is what the believers were tempted to do in this era. And so one of the messages that we find in all of this, in the book of Hebrews, that is, is this. In these changing times, don't put your trust in the things that will pass away, but put your trust in the eternal truth of God's word spoken by his very son, Jesus Christ. Another message we could find in this book is in these unsettling times, you can be secure when everything around you is falling apart. Why? Because we have a hope which is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, Hebrews 6.19. And we have a kingdom which cannot be moved, Hebrews 12.28. You know, dear people, the church today is living in somewhat similar circumstances. These are also politically unstable times. These are changing times. These are unsettling times. I don't have to remind you of that. It's pretty obvious. The future looks rather uncertain. And we believe that these are the last days. Delusion and deception are rampant. You know, it seems like so many things that used to be so clear are now sort of held in question. Or now they're sort of in a fog of confusion. Maybe it's matters of the atonement or salvation. Maybe it's eschatology. Maybe it's annihilism. Maybe it's something else. It seems like there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of wondering. There's a lot of debating. And the love of many in all of this is growing cold. In fact, Jesus said that this would happen. This should not be a surprise to you. The love of many is growing cold. And yet, these times are not hopeless because Jesus said, He who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And so there is hope, dear people. There is hope for you. There is hope for me. There is hope for those who are open to the Word of God, even in the midst of these unsettling times. And so I believe today that those who endure to the end will be those who have lived their lives in unswerving obedience to the truth. You know, in a day when many people are believing all kinds of strange things, all kinds of strange teachings. It has never been more important to be grounded in the enduring truth of God's Word. Make that your highest priority in life. Grounded, I say, in the enduring truths of God's Word. Now, let us read our text. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed 
to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will? It's a question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You notice the first word of this chapter is therefore. And like old Eli Slayball used to say, I remember this as a little boy hearing him different times. Whenever there's a therefore, we need to go back and see what it's there for. All right. And so that's what we're going to do. This points back to chapter one and specifically the first few verses of chapter one. Follow along. Hebrews 1.1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. And so the writer is beginning by saying, you know, God used to reveal himself to his people through the prophets. He would reveal his will to the prophets, his word to the prophets, and they would then take it to the people. And he says that they would do this uh, many times in various ways. But, verse 2 he hath in these last days or more recent times spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, just beautiful verses, glorious, majestic verses that gives so much depth and meaning to what is being said here. But the writer makes it very clear that this son who is now speaking to us is not just any old son. Okay, and he goes to describe that. He says this son is the heir of all things. This is God's one and only son. This son is the creator of the universe. This son, it says, is the brightness of the Father's glory. Or, or he is the radiance of the Father. Think of the Father being the sun. Okay, like, like, like the sun in the sky, okay? Think of the Father being the sun and Jesus Christ being those, those rays that are beaming from God the Father to man. He is the radiance of of the Father's glory. Wow. This Son is also the exact representation of the Father. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This Son is the upholder. Paul writes that by Him all things hold together. This Son is the Savior. It says He by Himself purged our sins. And this Son is the conqueror. It says that he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, that is, the, that is the picture of completion. He completed the work that God the Father sent him to do. He ascended back to his Father. He sat down. Mission accomplished. Wow. That's the son we're talking about. And so the thrust here is, you know, God has spoken to us by His very own Son. Not through the prophets, but now in recent times by His very own Son. Therefore, we need to give careful heed. We need to pay special attention to the words of the Son. Lest at any time we slip away or we drift away. The title for the message this evening is The Danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. Drift has been defined as a gradual move away from a set position. A gradual move away from a set position. 
And that is partly where the danger lies for us as we think about drift. It's not something that happens quickly. Or else it would be very obvious. In fact, we would notice it. Others would notice it quickly. But it is a gradual moving away from a set position. It's almost imperceptible. And yet it is a moving away. And within time, you're able to see, oh, wow. By means of illustration, ships loose from their moorings tend to drift with the tide. If the tide goes out, they drift out. Tide comes in, they drift in. What is in control of those ships that are loosed? The tide is. The tide is, is causing that. They are in control then of the movement. Think about airplanes uh, that may drift off course due to side winds. At that point, what is in control of the airplane? The winds are. Uh, sometimes vehicles. <laughs> vehicles may even drift from their parked position. Maybe they weren't parked correctly. Uh, vehicles can do that if they're not set correctly or, or set with the, you know, in gear or park brake or whatever. We had one of those situations some, some years ago. And when we came out uh, to the parking lot, it looked like uh, we were playing bumper cars. <laughs> People, even, can sometimes drift aimlessly from one place to another, from one job to another. There seems to be a lack of purpose. In fact, drift signifies that. It speaks of random, purposeless movement, drifting around, no real rhyme or reason, showing up here, showing up there. And in some cases, it can be quite harmless. But in other cases, it can be quite tragic. In fact, severe damage or death can result from drift. Think about on the highway. Tragic and fatal accidents happen when a car drifts across the center line into oncoming traffic. Fatal. I would say that drift can be prevented by taking precautionary measures, but purposeful action is always required. Purposeful action is always required. Think about this glass of water here. This glass of water is nice and cold right now. I'll take a drink. But it would take purposeful action to keep this glass of water at this temperature. If I wanted to say at this temperature, I would have to keep it in the refrigerator or ice chest or something like that. If I do nothing, it won't be long till that glass of water is the room temperature. It matches the temperature of its environment. Dear people, the same is true in our spiritual lives. In order to maintain a red hot zeal for God, we must we must face that with purposeful, intentional action. It will not happen by default. And when we fail to be intentional about our spiritual lives, we will not just stay on fire for the Lord. But as time goes along, our lives will match the temperature of the surrounding environment. That is the nature of life. And so you're starting to connect the dots already. You see, there is a form of drift that is much, much more dangerous than physical or material drift, and that is spiritual drift. That's spiritual drift. And while the same principles apply, the end result is far more consequential. Why, dear people? Because eternal souls are at stake. That's why. Eternal souls are at stake. So spiritual drift is also a gradual moving away from a set position, whether in practice or in doctrine, but it's a gradual moving away from truth. We probably all know of someone who has gradually drifted away from the truth. Even perhaps as I say that, faces come to mind. Someone who at one point in their life was on fire for the Lord. Who had a zeal, perhaps even a soul winner, 
And yet today, they have drifted away. Their lives have become lukewarm. They no longer have that first love for Jesus Christ. You know, there was a, as you ponder that, there was a lack of urgency. There was a lack of zeal. There was a lack of following after. Maybe there was somewhat of a dullness that came upon their eyes. There was not that spark anymore. Their, their face was not as vibrant anymore. Something was different about them. There was a casual approach to life that, that did not result in standing still, but drifting away. And that is a point, dear people, that I want you to remember tonight. In this life, there is no standing still. There is no neutral position in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Either you are moving in His direction and growing in your spiritual life, or you are easing away and becoming cold. Oh, we don't like to think about it like that, do we? I say there is no standing still in this life. It has been said that the life of this world is not a lake, but it is a river that is running downward to destruction. And when we fail to daily, hourly fix our eyes upon Jesus, we will not simply stand still, but we will go backwards. We will float away from Him. You know, in a river, it's the dead things that are swept along. The things that are alive hold their ground. In fact, the things that are alive have the strength to, to swim against the current, to go upstream. Here in our text, in verse 1, we read that spiritual drift happens when we fail to give earnest heed to God's Word. And it sounds like the person in James chapter 1, the person who hears the Word of God, maybe they read the Word of God, in other words, they're confronted with the Word of God, but then they promptly forget it. It says, he beholds himself, but then he goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. In other words, there is no intentional effort put into remembering the word. There is no intentional effort put into practicing the word. Why is that? Why does a person forget after they've read, after they've heard? You know, people don't plan to lose out in their Christian life. You don't hear a person say, you know, I'm going to surrender my heart to the Lord and I'm going to love Him. I'm going to live for Him. I'm going to be a part of the church and be very active. I'm going to have a vibrant relationship with God. And then after about five years, I'm just going to start, you know, cooling off. I'm going to stop going to church. Maybe then I'll stop reading my Bible and I'm just going to drift away. <laughs> no, you don't hear people say that. No one ever intends to drift away in their spiritual life. No one ever intends or plans to do it that way. But it happens because they don't plan not to, okay? <laughs> that reminds me of, of our little children sometimes. You know, and, and we, we sort of confront them with this at times. You know, maybe they're throwing ball in the front yard and they're lined up so the, the one catcher is right in front of the, you know, the front window. And they miss the ball. Shatters the window. And you know how we are. We, Johnny, why did you do that? I didn't try to. Yeah, but, but you didn't try not to. You know, it's, it's that whole thing. There's a picture here of complacency. As we look at this passage, a picture of indifference. It's a picture of carelessness, not taking care to avoid the danger or to avoid the harm. There's another similar word here, and that is the word negligence. And we find a form of that word in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect 
Now, you notice that the writer doesn't say, how shall we escape if we reject? No, he says neglect. I mean, we would never reject it, would we? I mean, after all, this was written to professing believers. The writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect? That is the Greek word amaleo, amaleo, to be careless, not to care. And I find this fascinating that we find this same Greek word in Matthew chapter 25. And the story there is where we read the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And then he sent out his servants to invite everyone in, but they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come to the king's banquet. And it says, after they were invited, it says, they made light of it. That's the word, amaleo, to make light of. They paid no attention to the call to come to the banquet, amaleo, to be careless. And it goes on to say, they went their own way, the one to his farm and the other to his business. Ah, I see. So the farm and the business was of greater priority than the call of the king. Still like that today. It's still like that today for many people. God is calling you to come experience my banquet. Come be my child. Come experience the best that this world has to offer. Come sit at my table. Come feast with me. And still today, so many people make light of that call. They make light of it. They go their way back to the farm, back to the business. What about you? What do you do with the call from King Jesus? What does that call mean to you? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Listen to what Albert Barnes had to write about this word neglect, this concept of neglect. I find it very fascinating. This is what he says. It is not merely if we commit great sins, not if we are murderers, adulterers, thieves, infidels, atheists, scoffers, it is if we merely neglect this salvation, if we do not embrace it, if we suffer it to pass unimproved. Neglect is enough to ruin a man. A man who is in business need not commit forgery or robbery to ruin himself. He has only to neglect his business and his ruin is certain. A man who is lying on a bed of sickness need not to cut his throat to destroy himself. He has only to neglect the means of restoration, and he will be ruined. A man floating in a boat above Niagara Falls need not move an oar or make an effort to destroy himself. He has only to neglect using the oar at the proper time, and he will certainly be carried over the falls. And then he says this, Most of the calamities of life are caused by simple neglect. By neglect of education, children grow up in ignorance. By neglect, a farm grows up to weeds and briars. By neglect, a house goes to decay. By neglect of, of sowing, a man will have no harvest. By neglect of reaping, the harvest would rot in the fields. No worldly interest can prosper where there is neglect. And why may it not be so in religion? There is nothing in earthly affairs that is valuable that will not be ruined if it is not attended to and why may it not be so with the concerns of the soul? Let no one think, therefore, that because he is not a drunkard or not an adulterer or a murderer, that therefore he will be saved. Such a thought would be as irrational as it would be for a man to think that because he is not a murderer, his farm will just produce a harvest. Or that because he is not an adulterer, therefore his merchandise will take care of itself. He says that's irrational thinking. But he says this, Salvation would be worth nothing if it costs no effort. And there will be no salvation where no effort is put forth. Wow. That's some challenging thoughts. No salvation where no effort is put forth. Dear people, our salvation is a great salvation. Just think about that. Think how great our salvation is 
compared to the salvation that the Jews experienced in the old dispensation. And I, I referred to that at the very beginning. Think of what they went through, the rituals, all the doing, the travel to the temple, all the sacrifices, all the, the mess that went along with that, all the heartbreak that went along with that method of, of salvation, as it were. Think of how our salvation compares to that. Now the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for us. We come to the cross, we die with Him, we accept that gift by faith. We are risen to new life through the power of the resurrection. What a beautiful relationship we can have with the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection. I say our salvation is a great salvation. First of all, because it has a great author. Look at chapter 2 here in verse 9. Verses 9 and 10. We read, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain or the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I say our salvation is a great salvation because it has a great author, but also our salvation is a great salvation because it saves us from great sins. In chapter 1, we read there again that, that He by Himself purged our sins, cleansed us, wiped the slate clean. We can stand before Him with confidence knowing that through the blood of Jesus, we can look at the face of Christ. What peace, what joy that brings. And our salvation is a great salvation because it saves us from great danger. You see, hell is what we deserve. But because of Jesus, heaven is what we receive. Praise God. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And you say, destroy him? Well, I certainly feel the power of the devil today. Isn't the devil certainly at act? Isn't he active in the world today? And I say, amen, he is. But look here what that means. There that word destroy, that he might destroy him, has the idea of, of disarming him, of making him none effect. Dear people, the devil's doom has been, has been is sure. He has been defeated. And there will come a time when he will forever be cast into the bottomless pit, never, never to deceive the world again. Oh, we long for that day, do we not? We certainly do. And then he goes on to say, verse 15, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, through Jesus' death on the cross and through His rising from the grave, death has been defeated. There is no more fear of death. We do not have to mourn as others do. Why? Because there is no more fear of death because Christ has conquered the grave. And so the Scripture says in Revelation that the overcomers, they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives even unto the death. Praise God. His doom is sure. And we can, we can stand in victory with confidence. Death does not have to cause fear and panic in our lives anymore. In fact, if we're not afraid to die, the devil can't do anything to us. You see, that, that confidence comes only through Jesus Christ. That means that there is a new master at work in our lives. Praise God. What a great salvation is that. And yet we say it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't you give Him everything? 
when you think of such a great salvation, and yet so many people pass it by. So many people pay no attention. So many people make light of that great salvation. They stay busy with other things. They may be busy with their hobbies. They may be busy with their businesses. They may be busy keeping up their houses and the landscaping around their houses. Of all things, they may stay too busy with church things and all the while neglecting the greater thing of a personal relationship with the Father. While all of these other things are, are getting attention and getting care, our spiritual lives can be on low. And I'm burdened this evening because there are so many people, and even there are so many people, it seems, in our churches today that are so disciplined and so skilled in the things of this life, and yet they are completely undisciplined in the things that really matter, and they are unskilled in handling the Word of God. Oh, they can, they can sew the prettiest quilts they can build the most attractive storage sheds. They can shoot the biggest bucks in the woods. But don't ask them to have devotions. Don't ask them to teach Sunday school. Don't ask them to help with Bible school. Now, I'm not good at that. I, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I never learned how to speak in public. Excuse me? Really? Really? The Hebrew writers, writer here says that if we do not stop and take a serious look at the priorities in our life, we can slip away. When we fail to keep our eyes on Jesus, when the things of this life become priority to us at the expense of the greater eternal things, he says, we will not escape. It's a very sobering warning to us tonight. Verse 3, we have this idea of, actually it's verse 2, the idea of the angels here. What is it about the angels? Why is he talking about the angels? In fact, he talks about the angels quite a bit in chapter 1 as well. But we read here, if the word spoken by angels was so steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward, well, in the Jewish religion, they held angels to a very high plane. Angels were a very important part of the Jewish religion, largely because they associated the angels very closely to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. They believed that not only were thousands of angels present when the law was given, but they had an active part. They participated in that. And so the angels have always been a very high part of the Jewish religion. And so here we have the Hebrews writer. He is writing to these people. He is targeting those believers. And he says, even if the word was spoken by angels was so steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, nothing got by with the angels either. But we're talking about someone who is so much greater than the angels. The angels pale in comparison to the Son of God. How shall we escape? How shall we escape? Implying that we shall not. We shall not escape if we fail to live in obedience to the truth of God's Word and instead live a life of spiritual negligence. And so the cry to each one of us this evening is don't reject, don't neglect, this great salvation, but, but gratefully receive it and daily put forth effort to maintain that vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day when spiritual drift seems to be somewhat commonplace around us. And I don't know how you feel about that, but it can feel very discouraging for me when I look around, when I think of, of friends that I had in the past, fellows that I grew up with, maybe young people that I went to Bible school, Heritage Bible School years ago, others around, maybe even those in our own congregation, that can become discouraging to me. 
when we see individuals, but then also churches and even whole denominations slipping away from the pure doctrines of God's word. Truths that have been believed and positions that have been maintained for years are now in question. And the devil, who is the father of lies, is working overtime to cause many to fall for his deceptive tricks. That age-old question is still coming up today. Hath God said? Did God really mean that? When you read that in Scripture, well, is that really the tenor of what is being spoken here? Maybe there's another way of looking at that. I say that question is still today entertained in the minds of many people. And yet, dear people, spiritual drift is not inevitable. We must and we can fight against it. And the Bible gives us clear direction for not only fighting against drift, but winning the battle against spiritual drift. And so, lift up your eyes, put a smile on your face. There is hope and there is victory. And we find the keys to that here in God's Word. And so yet this evening, I want to notice four keys to guarding against drift in our lives. Four keys. And the first is this. Be sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ. The key there is sure. Be sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ. I invite you to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. It's the Apostle Paul writing here. And we read, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I just want to stop there for a moment. This phrase, I am not ashamed, is a theme in the Apostle Paul's life. I am not ashamed. He was a man who lived life with conviction, with boldness. He didn't, he didn't steer away from opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. I am not ashamed. We see that different times. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that is in the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I am not ashamed. That was Paul's theme in his life. It just, it just sprang out of his life. He goes on to say, we could ask the question, why? Why was he not ashamed here in verse 12? And he answers it, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. I'm going to say something now that not everyone agrees with. But I find a basis for it right here in these verses. And that is that salvation is a combined effort between God and us. Now hear me out. Salvation is a thing of God. It is God's plan. God has made it available to us. He invites us to be His children. He invites us to receive that free gift of salvation. And notice here what verse 12 says again. Paul said, I believe in God and I am persuaded in His ability. His ability to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, until that day. I believe that. I believe that he has the keeping power to do that, but he doesn't stop there. 
He then points to our responsibility, and that is of continued faithfulness, continued obedience, walking with Christ. He says that we must hold fast to that form of sound words. He says in verse 14 that we need to keep by the Holy Ghost that which was committed to us. Hold fast. Keep. There is obedience. There is faithfulness on our part that is absolutely essential to us then receiving that final reward from the Heavenly Father. But just notice again that assurance that Paul had, the assurance of his salvation, his position with Christ. And it's no wonder that he lived with such confidence. Note those words that ring with certainty. He said, I know. He said, I am persuaded. He says, I have committed. They're words that speak of of deep personal conviction. They're not fluffy words on the outside, but, but they go way down deep. They are a part of who he is. And then we find that strength to keep and to hold fast through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That one who guides us into all truth. That one who whispers in our ears, this is the way, walk ye in it. When you turn to the left or to the right, it is that one that guides us, that directs us. It is through that that we find the power, the strength to keep and to endure. Be sure, I say, of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a key to guarding against spiritual drift. Secondly, then, be firmly grounded and rooted. No, be, I'm sorry. Be firmly grounded and settled in the truths of God's word. Be firmly grounded and settled in the truths of God's word. Turn back a few pages to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. And we read this, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Do you see that, do you see that phrase that speaks of, of such strength and such stability? Continue in the faith, grounded and settled and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Our people today are consuming more Christian content than ever before. And yet, it is not leading to greater clarity and conviction. It is leading to increased confusion. There's something wrong about that. Is that surprising to you? I say, We're consuming more Christian content than ever before. We have more Christian content at our fingertips than this world has ever had. And yet it is not necessarily strengthening the church of Jesus Christ. There are more fractions than there's ever been. What is wrong? What is wrong? And I say, there is a lot of different opinions of what the faith looks like. There's a lot of different understandings of how the gospel should look, how it should be expressed, what it really looks like in my life, what it looks like in my living. There is a moving away from the pure faith, the pure gospel as we find it in the Holy Bible. There's a lot of 
of, oh, this is my perspective. This is my understanding. And there's a lot of influential men. There's a lot of attractive speakers that are peddling that and doing well with it. And I call you, dear people, to be careful with what you absorb. Be careful with what you absorb. Oh, we listen to a lot of podcasts. We watch YouTube videos of this preacher and that preacher. And I mean, he's really got a good sermon. Did you hear that sermon? Man, he's a great preacher. And did you hear that? Boy, that's really something. But we know nothing about them. We know nothing about that preacher. We don't know what he's like. We don't know his day in and day out life. We don't know how he treats his wife. We don't know how he treats his children. We don't know where he goes on vacation. We don't know any of that. But he's a good preacher. You need to listen to him. I think we need to be careful about some of that. I say it's leading to increased confusion in our circles today. The call here is to continue in the faith, grounded, settled, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. I say that is true spiritual stability that will empower you to go against the flow of mainstream influence. And I just want to challenge you, dear people, uh, to be a person of conviction a person who daily reads and studies the Bible and then orders your life in obedience to it. Look, put away your other books for a while. Put away the other commentaries for a while. Stop Googling it. Get your Bible and between you and the Holy Spirit and your Bible, you read and study and come to a place of conviction and then sharpen that understanding with your brothers and sisters around you. There is safety. There is strength. There is unity in that kind of study. Amen. There is. I challenge you in that. We need that today. We need that method today. The Holy Spirit is the greatest commentator we could ever have as we study God's word. You know, we, we live in a day where there's, there's a lot of cut and paste. It's a cut and paste mentality. There's a lot of instant sermons. And what I mean by that is that too many people are, are going the easy route when it comes to preparing for Sunday school, preparing for that topic, preparing for that sermon. Oh, the resources are so readily available. Click, click, click. Okay, I need to do a sermon on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Sermons on Thanksgiving. Okay, Siri, give me a sermon on Thanksgiving. Great. Oh, write it down. Okay, then we go teach Sunday school. Let me tell you one thing. There's a reason that so much of our teaching and preaching is lifeless. Why? Because we don't find the Holy Spirit in Google. That's why. Okay? We don't find the Holy Spirit in Google. And it's a burden that I have in my heart. I'm sure you've been able to tell that by now. But God help us to be students of the Word, people of conviction, and that will bring a vibrancy and a life to our individual lives in our churches like never before. Thirdly, then, a key to guarding against drift, and that is be committed to the local body of believers. Be committed to the local body of believers. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 4. Someone has said that lone rangers are dead rangers. <laughs> now, I don't know what the original intent of that phrase was. It sounds awfully much like the Wild West to me. <laughs> but I do know where I saw it. I read it in relation to internet accountability. Lone rangers are dead rangers. And I think it works well there. But it fits well as we think about our commitment to the local body of believers. Where is that commitment? What is the level of your commitment to the local body of believers? You say, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I love the Lord. Where do you attend church? Who are you committed to? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 
and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, remember that word, children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We have two contrasting pictures in these few verses. Two contrasting pictures. Here I see the, the Apostle Paul. He paints a beautiful picture of what God intended the church to be. How it should look how it should function, what it should be doing. And as I think about that, I think about a greenhouse. We're all familiar with greenhouses, at least to a certain extent. But a greenhouse is a place of warmth, a place of safety from the storms. It's a place where little seeds are planted in fertile soil. And it, they get lots of care and attention. They get they get food and water on a daily basis. Once again, there's shelter, there's protection, there's warmth. It's a wonderful growing environment. And then as those plants grow, they grow and they grow and they become beautiful, maybe little trees, maybe flowers, bushes. The intent is not for them to live their whole life in the greenhouse. The intent then is for those to go out and go around the community, beautifying that community with life, with flowers, with trees, with bushes, with beauty. That's the purpose. That's the intent. And I say the church is really designed to be that way. It's a place where, where lives come to Jesus Christ. It's a place where there's nurture. There's warmth. There's safety from the winds and the storms of life. It's a place where there's companionship. There's others like it that are growing. They're being nourished. They're being fed and watered. These souls are on a regular basis. And they're growing together. They're growing together. And yet the mission of the church is not simply just to stay in the church and just love each other. But it, but it is preparing us to then go out and beautify the communities around us, taking the strength and the, the nurture that we received. And then from growing through that, we then are then strong and able to then be a blessing to the surrounding areas. I find that beautiful. But we come back here to this contrasting picture and the one is the picture of, of children. We find that in verse 14. And notice the picture there. That is a picture of those who, who are not grounded. They're not settled. It's a picture of instability. It's a picture of, of drifting. They're like little children. They're, they're vulnerable. They're gullible. They hear this. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Then they hear this. Oh, that, that sounds good too. Then they read this. Oh, wow, you should read that. And then they're, they're, they're tossed to and fro. They're not grounded in truth. They're so quick to hear this and hear that. And their lives are a picture of instability. There's a lack of commitment. There's a lack of conviction. And you see the last word of that verse. It's deceive. It's a picture of people who are being deceived. But then we have this contrasting picture in verse 16. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of, of strength. It's a picture of a church that is unified under the banner of truth. There's life there. There's sincere love there. There's a spirit of togetherness there. It's a stable picture. 
it really looks like a well-oiled machine working together. Each part matters. And what is the last word of that verse? It's love. Love. That is the mark of that beautiful body of believers. Love. Do you see what makes the difference, though, from verse 14 to verse 16? The difference is truth in verse 15. (laughs) Truth is at the center. Truth is what makes all the difference. Verse 14 are a group of people that are not grounded and settled in truth. Verse 16 is a group of people that are. That makes all the difference. And we find, dear people, we find that place of truth among our brothers and sisters who are studying the Word. A local body of believers that are committed to truth. And we find that. No man is an island. None of us can stand alone. We need the help. We need the security. We need the perspective. We need the accountability of our brothers and sisters. I challenge you, commit yourself to that. Be a part of that. Your individual spiritual life will flourish as you commit to the local body of believers. It will. It will. Be committed to the local body of believers. And then last, a key to guarding against spiritual drift in our lives is be diligent in your faith. Be diligent in your faith. Years ago, uh, during the time of the World Wars, General Douglas MacArthur made this statement. He said, it is fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. Fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. To win it. And dear people, the same is true in our spiritual lives as well. We fight drift with diligence. And it is true that our natural bent is downward. Our natural bent is away from established truth, established practice. And in fact, our old man rebels against that. We want to do it our own way. It's a matter of pride in our lives. I say, therefore, constant diligence is necessary to stay on course. You see, there is no such thing as cruise control in the Christian life. No, no cruise control in the Christian life. But we fight drift with continued purposeful action. Turn yet to Jude, the book of Jude, as we bring this to a close. The book of Jude gives us a good example of the diligence needed to combat drift. Someone has said that the Christian life is a life of holy energy. And we find that here in the book of Jude. A life of holy energy. Verse 3 of Jude. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord God, I'm sorry, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, let's move over a page uh, to verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves. Or, or another way of saying that is these people bring division. They are sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, notice the contrast here, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Wow. Do you see the action in those words? Action. It is purposeful action. In fact, I look at it this way. There is a building up. There is a praying. There is a keeping. 
There is a looking. There is a loving. There is a saving. There is a pulling. There is even a hating within its right context. A hating of sin. Continued purposeful action. It is the diligence that we need to combat drift in our lives. That's something that we must do through the power of God. It is our part, you could say, our part of salvation. And yet that's not where Jude ends. What does he say yet? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. You see, dear people, we can work till we are blue in the face, as it were, trying to do it right, trying to make sure all of our, you know, our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted and oh, making sure that we're doing it right and have we done this and have we done that and in, in a sense, trying to save ourselves. And yet, ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who keeps us from falling. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit working within us that enables us, enables us to endure to the end, combating spiritual drift in our lives. Oh, wow. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus asks a very serious question. He says, When the Son of Man returns... Shall he find faith on the earth? And I believe he will. I believe he will find faith. I believe the more pertinent question for us tonight is, will he find faith in your life? Will he find faith in my life? May God help us, dear people, to grasp the truth. To not just have it in our minds but to surrender our lives to it. And may it direct us, may it empower us. And may the word of truth truly flow richly through us that we then become a channel of blessing, calling other men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be magnified above all.